Hey, this is Bob Rock, and I'm on Focus on Metal, and hope you guys out there are rocking. Hey, Metalheads, welcome to yet another episode of Focus on Metal and also another episode of our Little Mountain Sound series as we head into uh, segment nine of that puppy. This week, we are pretty pleased to uh, be able to talk to the one and only Bob Rock. I mean, really, when you're talking about Little Mountain Sound and all the albums that come through there, there's really two big names that uh, everyone you know, would want you to talk to. And of course, one of them no longer with us that would be bruce fairburn but then the other guy is bob rock who's uh, one of the guys who's probably most associated with little mountain sound but uh, just as a producer in general bob rock has had uh, just a pretty damn amazing career you know you look up to uh, ultimate classic rock they've got the uh, top 10 bob rock produced albums and uh, pretty impressive list number 10 the blitz from crocus number nine uh, sinner by uh, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Of course, David Lee Ross, A Little Ain't Enough at number eight. Lover Boys Get Lucky at number seven, an album that we discussed a little bit in the interview. Number six, of course, is the classic album, Blue Murder. Great album there. One of the uh, one of those albums that's on all Metalhead's favorites list. Number five, New Jersey, uh, an album that's probably not on any of the Metalhead's most favorite list. Number four, Load. That one kind of plays right in the middle there. Number three, Sonic Temple by the Cult. Number two, Dr. Feelgood, and of course, the one that's on everybody's list when you talk about Bob Rock is Metallica's The Black Album. So, uh, you know, right there, those 10 albums, until guys had a pretty varied and storied career, and definitely, as I said, you know, when you're going to talk to people about Little Mountain Sound, he is definitely a guy that you'd really want to have on the show. So, as uh, you know, any of you that listen to a lot of these type of shows know that uh, Bob Rock doesn't often show up on such things. So, uh, definitely a privilege that the guy was uh, willing to come on the show. And we have to give thanks to Mike Frazier for that. Once again, Frazier has come through for Focus on Metal. He's such a friend of the show. So, it wasn't our reputation, really, that uh, cemented Bob coming on the show, but really our friend Frazier, giving him the good word for us that uh, we were we were cool to talk to. Uh, again, you know, hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, really means a lot that you helped us out with this one and getting Bob on the show for us. So as we try to put this interview into its uh, its time frame, I did this one back on uh, January 31st of 2015. So, yep, it's been in the can for a while, like pretty much everything on the Little Mountain Sound Project. So at this point, Bob was busy working with the cult on their Hidden City release. Why am I telling all of this? Well, just for two reasons. One, like I said, to kind of just focus as to what point in time this interview was done and what Bob was up to. But also because in the, during the interview, Bob talks about working with the cult, you know, going to their, down to do mixing and stuff that particular day. And I didn't want people thinking, oh, you know, Bob's working on another cult album right now. As I said, this was done back on January 31st, 2015 was when Richie and I sat down and had a conversation with Bob Rock. And uh, the guy was also feeling a little bit under the weather that day. And I have tried my best to catch all of the coughs and so forth as we talked to Bob. Hopefully I've got them all. Uh, but if not, uh, yeah, that's the deal. Bob uh, working hard like he usually does and um, just putting it all into the album. 
Also, just want to let you know this one is going to be a music light as most of the Little Mountain Sound episodes are. Bob has a lot of good stuff to talk about, about the whole Little Mountain Sound experience, a lot of technical stuff and really, really good stuff. And I just want to make sure that uh, we give that its proper place. So again, music light episode this week as we talk to Bob Rock. So with that, let's roll tape. All right, guys, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, Explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. I like what I'm hearing. Go away. Listeners, we have the one and only Bob Rock on the phone here as part of our series on Little Mountain Sound. So, how are we doing today, Bob? Well, uh, today I'm doing pretty good. I'm just getting <laughs> over a cold, but I'm doing okay surviving here. Yes. I, I want to go back to when, when you started Little Mountain Sound. Did you see yourself being there for, for a long time, or did you think that it was just going to be short term? 
I never, to be quite honest, I never really thought about it. I, uh, uh, Roger Monk was, uh, I guess it would be in 1976 during the summer taught a brief recording course. It was very brief and it wasn't much. Well, it was just an introduction to the studio. So I took that course and, uh, there was, he was teaching two classes, uh, out of one class, Ron Bernoulin got a job and out of the class I was in, I got the job. Uh, Roger phoned me and said, are you interested in an assistant job at, at the studio I work at, and I, I said, of course, and I got on uh, the BC ferry from Victoria over to Vancouver, and um, I I went for an interview, and I got the job, and uh, that was Christmas, it's before Christmas, 1976. Wow, okay. Wow. And in the beginning, what did they throw at you? Was it mostly jingles that you worked on? Well, I started at the very bottom. I was an assistant engineer, and I made tape copies. Uh, you know, cause they were making, uh, they were making jingles, they were making commercials, uh, along with some music. The day I was there, BTO was recording an album. The day I did my interview and Bruce Allen actually walked in my manager. Uh, so it was a very fateful day to, to say the least. But, um, yeah, I started sweeping the floors, cleaning the studio, putting, you know, doing the setup for all the sessions and making tape copies. Uh, so from there, uh, I assisted both the two engineers, chief engineers, David Roger Monk and a guy named Dave Packer. Uh, and both Ron, uh, we call him Ron Obvious, that was his nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Obvious and myself, uh, yeah, we, we assisted, uh, and did all the assistant work, all the jobs, and... Ron ended up helping um, the technical guy at, at the mountain, uh, John Batafric. Yeah. He ended up being his assistant. And it should go, it should not go without saying that really the key, besides, of course, the musicians and the engineers, but the reason why Little Mountain was so magical is uh, the guy that built it, Jeff Turner. He built the studios, and then when John Vertastic took over as the technical director, he made it he made it like workable, uh, just just an awesome technician, the absolute perfect technician for a studio. Very clever, yeah. I mean, we just operated constantly, and you need a good technician to be a great studio. He's responsible for it. I'm sure everybody talked about him. We spoke to Bob Brooks. He said that the studio would never have got anywhere without John Fertastic it being the being in there. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, he said he was absolutely. an incredible, incredible, incredible engineer. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. That's how I got my beginning. I think pretty much everybody we talked to, you know, as far as from the staff, they all, you know, just really said a lot about how valuable John was, and he what is such a key player he, you know, he was to make it all work. Well, you know, in studios, there's all these behind-the-scenes guys, and much like most things, but, um, you know, you have to understand that just the way we all listen, like, like there's a certain power amp that, uh, for speakers that I use, that Mike Fraser uses, that Randy Staub uses, and it was all basically about John, mm-hmm. and, that, and, and he, the way he taught us, and the way he, you know, um, for me... The formative years, there being an assistant before I started engineering, 
were re- was really learning to listen. And to learning to listen, you have to have a standard of what is right. And John, along with Roger Monk and Dave Blackett, were the guys that showed all of us how to listen and what was right. And you have to have the best equipment uh, to be able to do that. And that's what John, John Vitasic did. And he also helped, and he also designed the rooms. He made the rooms that were there. They were okay, but he made them better. He redesigned the control rooms and did all these changes that made them made it a better studio. So, right. Yeah. So, so how quickly, Bob, did you go from an assistant engineer to actually engineering on on projects there? Well, uh, it was pretty quick, actually. I mean, it was a couple of years, I guess. I was an assistant, uh, but the the thing that happened was the, the punk scene happened in Vancouver, and that was very timely. Uh, when the punk scene happened in England and then broke in, you know, basically when punk came over to America and Canada, for me as as an engineer, it was fantastic because the other engineers didn't want to record it, you know, so they gave it to myself and Ron to record. So that was our opportunity to learn. We did all the punk bands. Uh, Ron did the away and, and, uh, uh, I, I draw a blank, but, uh, lots of different bands. You jerk the away. I did the young Canadians and the point of six and modern F. And, um, you know, uh, they, all those bands were, were the first records they were making. But also, it allowed us to learn how to to do it. Right. And then we started both started doing, well, especially me, I started doing jingles during the day. And jingles was, was such a learning thing for me because you're basically making a record a day. You know, you start in the morning, you record everything, and you mix it by that afternoon. And that process, you just learn. You learn how to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I so, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, so that in... in that was one kind of aspect of my life. But the other aspect, of course, is, is I was learning through recording um, jingles and other projects that I worked on. I was learning how to put together songs, etc. So when punk happened, uh, my partner, Paul Hyde, and myself, is my high school friend, uh, we saw an opportunity that, hey, you know, punk music allowed us to, we can write a song, and put out a record, and get it printed out and put out a record, and uh, we could be a band and stuff. So that was also forming at the same time, is the fact that I could actually be an artist. Um, so all of that combined, it was my, my whole life was consumed in recording and making records. Yeah. And so that was, that was huge, the fact that punk came in. Before that, there was this, I wouldn't say an elitism, but there was just a quality of musicians that was way above my pay grade that wasn't allowed to make records. So <laughs> it, was, it was a way to get in the door, right? Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting too, you know, you, you talk about you know, being able to listen and all that. And, and I definitely see that whenever I see footage of you working in the studio and stuff that you've, you can always tell that you're really listening before you make suggestions and things like that. It's, I never see kind of the expression on your face of, 
you've got this preconceived notion before you give the suggestion. I, it always really comes across strongly that, that you're someone who's actively listening to everything before you say something. Now, does some of that come out of learning to record, you know, in the seventies where there was, you know, there wasn't all this automation and all types of things. And you, you really had to, to always be listening for things that would be there for in one second and, and gone the next. Um, well, that's an interesting observation. Uh, I would say that, you know, uh, for me, the listening process is, is uh, it's kind of, I, I don't know how to describe it. Let's put it this way. Okay. Uh, years ago, I took uh, martial arts. I, I think I was actually during Metallica, and I needed something to do, so I took martial arts. Mm-hmm. First day I took martial arts, I got private lessons. This guy kind of did all this stuff around me, and, and it was, like, unbelievable. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see what he was doing. It was just like, wow. A year later, I could track all he, what he was doing. In other words, through time, I learned to notice what was going on. You become aware of things. Mm-hmm. You, you start to track things. It's the same with listening. Even though, you know, I probably got damage to my ears. I know I do. But still, it's the process of being able to hyper-focus on certain things. That, that just comes with the territory. But also on a musical level, you also learn, um, for me, the experience at Little Mountain, being an assistant and being an engineer, is the fact that we were constantly had uh, different artists paraded in front of us. So from every single project that I worked on, whether it was Christian music, whether it was R&B, whether it was pop, whether it was rock, whoever came through those doors, including all the producers and engineers that came to Little Mountain, we, I got something out of it. One thing, two things, and that whole combination became me. Mm. And you just sit there as an assistant, you sat in the back of the room, because you really, you didn't say anything. Otherwise, you weren't allowed in the room. Right. So you would sit back there and you would learn to listen and stay and you know, really know what's going on. But getting back to your point, as an assistant using, like I started off on a 16-track, mm. I mean, you you didn't have a hard drive that you could save everything to. Right. You had to be, you had to be on it. I mean, we used to punch guitar solos in on drum tracks, you know, etc. And yeah. you couldn't make a mistake. If you did, and I made some a lot. Everybody does when they do it. But it's terrifying, you know? Right. Uh, and you just learn to be attentive to everything. Yeah. yeah that also, that, that, whole, that whole period, like I said, is also really just training and you, you acquire a wisdom, so to speak. Now, I've been doing this since 76, and if I have knowledge about this, the not it's it's really living all the experiences. Mm. If there's a wisdom that I have now about the whole thing, it was two years all those experiences kind of piling up. And then you, I think it was a couple of years ago. I kind of thought, I think I kind of know what I'm doing now. And that's after <laughs> like, and I was wrong because I'm still learning. So there you go. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, Bob, about um, Bruce Fairburn. Um, we've yeah. we've asked we've asked a lot of people about Bruce, but you you worked with him a lot. Can you tell us what he was like as a person? Bruce was a very he's a great guy. He's a very sound great guy. And what's interesting about him? <clears throat> he was a trumpet player, 
and he played in, in university with some of the guys that, like, uh, which ended up being uh, this band called Prism. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he had a, a love of music, um, but he also had a degree, university educated. And so, in a funny way, if you looked at him, you wouldn't think he would be in the business, but he was smart enough to know that there was something there that he could belong to. Um, and I would say that he was a guy to his benefit uh, that worked harder and really was the guy that could go knocking on doors and make things happen. Yeah. yeah. In the beginning, okay? And then he became that guy. You know, one of the great uh, things that he brought to the Aerosmith project and so many projects is it's just like, this is what we're doing. It. This is the time we're doing it. Show up or aren't showing up. So people respected his his kind of the flow that he created, which really helps a lot of guys. That's yeah. what I learned the most from him is is kind of get this done. And that's kind of interesting for that era too, because in that era, I mean, you know even in the seventies, right? I mean, a lot of people kind of had this, yeah, we show up, we're the band, we're in control and all that. And almost to me, it seems like, you know, Bruce was really kind of bucking the system a little bit with keeping people on track. And it's almost that old school thing, right? For the producer of, I own this budget and I'm going to, I'm going to bring it in on budget. You're going to, we're going to do it to my time. Oh, absolutely. He was, uh, you know, which is the difference between us that I've learned a lesson about from him is he was, the budget-wise, et cetera, he was on the money all the time, whereas coming from where I came from when I started being in charge of budgets, I was always more, well, this is about the project, this is about the art, you know, and, uh, you know, and I got into trouble a lot in the beginning because I couldn't really manage that aspect of it because it was always like the creative thing was number one to me. Yeah, well, I think you, you have to have that balance. creative, though. What's that? I think you prove your point about the creative, though. I don't think a lot of people can argue with the stuff you came out with. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody's different. Bruce was brilliant. Mm. And, you know, he, from the punk stuff that I was doing, he's the guy that gave me a shot. He said, I guess he heard about me, what I was doing, and he wanted to try something new. So we did something. We did prison together, and that, that, that started at all. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of Little Mountain, though, some of the, the key things for me that happened is when we started off, we were, we have new consoles and we're taught a technique of recording that was very much an English style, which is where Jeff Turner, who built the studio, yeah. Roger Monk and Dave Flachter came from, which is the English way of recording a lot of the uh, uh, Northern microphones, need console, and uh, scully tape machines and then stereo tape machines. And we, the first record I was making with Bruce, Prism, right through up till just about Slippery Run West, I was making records uh, on analog machines, but also mixing um, without automation. Right. And it was kind of, uh, it was really, really great because you had to work harder. And the mixing was was very performance wise. Like uh, I I know all the moves still when I hear working for the weekend. I know all the moves I make and I can still hear them. <laughs> you know, so um, 
when we mix that, you know, Bruce would be riding traders, I'd be riding the vocals and the toms and all this other stuff, and my friends would be riding echoes and stuff, three of us, it was just, you know, we were so happy to get through the mix that we actually did it. Yeah. But lived up in Vancouver at the time, we didn't even know that, that people in, the people that were making records, they would do one section and edit it in. We didn't even have that down. So that shows you what, where we were, we were just trying to learn how to do it as we were making these great records. Yeah. Well, I think maybe that's part of what ultimately helped with Little Mountain, right? Is you, you guys didn't have this kind of preconceived cookie cutter, oh, that's how you do it, and you just went with it that way. I think maybe that learning process and stuff kind of gave us something that was a little bit more organic and, and a little bit more, uh, I don't know, the just people could relate to it better. Yeah. But, you know, then things changed when Brian Adams uh, recorded his, uh, I guess it was, uh, which album would it be? Reckless. Cuts Like a Knife. No, Cuts Like a Knife first. Okay. He, uh, he, Oh, no, Cuts Like a Knife, he did New York. Yeah, Reckless, he did in Vancouver. And he brought Bob Clear Mountain to Little Mountain. Mm. Now, Bob loved the fact that we had these consoles. We didn't have SSLs yet. Uh, but Bob Clear Mountain brought, he was there. He was a godhead. He was the guy. And he came there, and he did some stuff that that just changed all of us. He opened the doors to what? is the famous loading bay. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the first night when they went home, I went in and I looked at everything. I looked at everything Clear Mountain was doing. Um, and the whole loading bay was just like, what is this guy doing? And it was, he found the loading bay. He taught us. He made that sound. Yeah. And everything I did after that, I used the loading bay. And of course, what's interesting is is you once again it's like he he opened that door, but when he opened that door, we all came running in. And for me, I took the I took those ideas and and kind of made it my version of it. And uh, and you know the the next thing that happened, of course, is we got our SSL, our first SSL, and then everything changed again. Yeah, yeah. Now, Bob, were you? Did you see going from engineer to producer? Was it like natural for you, or you know, were you a bit, little bit reluctant to do it in the beginning? Um, there was many things going on. Um, what I realized is is that uh, uh, that I wanted more. The more I learned, like uh, the opportunity that Bruce gave me, the experiences for years, that the records that we made. I knew that I could do it. Um, so as it, it really took a bit of a, we had a bit of a run-in uh, while we were making a permanent vacation. And uh, and I just went, I got to do this myself now. And uh, at the time, Bruce Allen, our manager who was managing my band, Said you gotta you gotta start taking this seriously, and he started managing me as a producer, and my life changed. So it was one of those things that was like, it was uh, it was kind of scary to do, but I just had to try and move on. And uh, but it, it, you know, so many things when things change, 
you're so scared of it, but really it ends up being the best thing for you. And uh, I had done my time as an engineer and as a mixer. You know, I really had. Uh, I needed to do more to be satisfied. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, one of the things you have to do as a producer, and maybe not so much an engineer and a mixer, um, you're dealing now directly with the people. And of course, people yeah. are people are volatile. They've all got egos. Did the, how was that for you in the beginning as well? Because you had all these artists coming in that, you know, they they think it's their way or the highway, and now you're their producer. Was that was that difficult for you as well in the beginning, or did you? Oh, to... it was definitely it was definitely difficult. But but the thing being the engineer and a mixer on projects, you were lucky enough that you didn't have to deal with the decision, so to speak. You weren't the final. So in a way, you could just hang with the band. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the, all the others, you just kind of were the guys, right? You were, the, you were just cut, trying to get sounds. And, you know, people. it was definitely difficult. I mean, the challenges that, you know, artists give you as an engineer, you know, they give you definitely a lot of problem solving, et cetera. But in terms of the personalities, as an engineer, you don't have that final responsibility. So you didn't have the heavy talks that had to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you still had a bit of that, so I kind of, I kind of observed, etc. So, but definitely going into the personality part of it when I changed to producer was very difficult. Yeah. But um, you just kind of learn to ride that wave. I guess is the way to, to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that it was really important for us to talk to you doing this project is that it's it's amazing for me that you know in the time when people were really, you know, demanding your talent and stuff that, that you always had the stones to when they wanted you to go, yep, you got to come up to Vancouver where I think a lot of other producers would be willing to go to LA or New York or wherever the artist was. And, and you always seem to have this reputation of, yeah, I'll be happy to work with you, but you got to come up to this studio. And was that hard for you to do or, or, you know, to be so loyal to that studio? Well, it really, in the beginning, it was pretty easy to convince people because, um, you know, work in the business has always been about what you've done. Mm -hmm. So uh, they wanted the sound, and you just kind of go, if you want that sound, this is the place. Because Little Mom had a sound. Oh, yeah. Uh, and if you didn't, you know, but there's, there's famous studios in New York, and and Los Angeles that have a sound now, now I've been lucky I've, I've worked in many of them, and each one has its individual character. Yeah. So Little Mountain, it was really easy to convince them. Plus, the, the, the fact was is that Vancouver is, is, is such a great city um, that people didn't mind coming, and uh, economically it was good, because the, through the 70s and 80s, the uh, uh, money-wise it was good, for bands to come. So it's quite easy to get them to go there, to be quite honest. Yeah. And really, you know, to be, to be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to be able to travel everywhere. I, di I didn't have enough confidence because I was so used to using the equipment that I had. Sure. That all changed when it was forced. Like when I did Metallica, they, they, they didn't, it wasn't, they didn't want to go to Little Mountain. They said, this is where we're doing it. And to do the project, I had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, when you get, those bands up there the first time and of course one of the things that you always hear is a lot of these bands really 
were chasing that that Bob Rock drum sound and stuff. And so the first times you got those bands up there and they discovered that part of the key to that sound was the garage bay. Were they shocked about that? Um uh, I yeah, I don't I don't know if they were shocked by it. I think they were just elated by it. Mm. Uh like I said, that came from Bob Clearmount, but uh we all made our different versions of that. We all used it in a different way. Um yeah, it was just one of those magical things. You see, and the important thing to state about that is, uh, you know, Bob, uh, who's a friend, he had told me, you know, I mean, the power station sound was the stairwell there. Right. You know, it was the question of these were not things that were uh, designed by studio designers. Hmm. And that's what's important to note about Little Mountain. It's all the changes to monitoring, to tape machines, to the loading, all the things that were done acoustically by John Metastic and with all of us were all done. We were just tweaking Little Mountain to become what it did become, you know? Yeah. That was the process of, of discovering these things and using acoustics like that. Uh, I mean, we just didn't, we didn't have the experience. We were this isolated town up north. So we had to look, we had to use our ears first. And then we, as people came through, like I said, and we traveled, we all brought back this stuff and we incorporated it into Little Mountain. So it was a culmination of a lot of uh, things that got tweaked at Little Mountain and then it became the solid room that it was just magic. Mm. Yeah. It was very easy to work in. Yeah, now of course, Bob, there was two huge albums exploded out of the studio in the 80s. Uh, Slippery Round White was one of them, and Parent yeah. Vacation was the other one. Now, after those two albums exploded and the bands went back there, did you ever experience record company pressure to you know, tweak the songs so that they were more radio-friendly? Uh, when, uh, when I was a first producer, it wasn't a, yeah, it was, that was always it. Um, but that's kind of how the business was and still is. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always the pressure from the record company to do that. Um, actually, I would say now more than ever, it is, has less than a, of an effect. It's not so much trying to have a thing these days, it's just trying to be really good. Back then, you know, they had to have a radio song. And the producer was to, the producer's job was to bring out the best qualities of whatever artists you had. Uh, to kind of get there without kind of them knowing that you're trying to do that. Yeah. If that makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. You had to kind of corral it and focus it. And that's, that's part of uh, the learning curve as a producer and in making records is how to make maybe something that is not specifically written as a single sound and become a single because of what you've done in the studio.
know that a lot of times when people do talk to you about bands you work with and stuff, and invariably everyone talks to you about Metallica, everybody talks to you about Motley Crue, and, and granted they're big bands, but I've always felt that it's a little bit shameful that nobody seems to ever ask you about the cult, and, and I thought you were one of these people that was kind of instrumental of, of getting that sound out of them, because they're... To me, they're almost were never really a band. It was kind of it was Ian, it was Billy, and then whoever they you know they had play with them. And and do you have you know kind of any interesting you know recollections of working with them, or was it was it difficult? Was it easy? Um, just you know, it's one of these bands I think that people just never really really ask you about. And it's a shame they don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm working with them now. I I say this is like I'm going there in a couple of hours to work with them. They've become. Uh, a, well, first of all, I did Sonic Temple, mm. and uh, I actually became friends with Billy Duffy before that, and Billy really liked the sound of an album uh, that I did called Kingdom Come. Yeah. He really liked that sound, and he really liked, obviously, the other stuff I had next been recorded, and um, they had done the Love album, and then they did the Electric album with Rick Rubin. Um, when I did Sonic Temple, I, I liked the electric album that Rick did, but I kind of lost a bit of what I loved about the first album, mm. love album. So Sonic Temple was me kind of making a combination of where they'd gone, to trying to go back to Billy's style and Ian's style of writing songs. Um, once again, I was putting put in, like I was friends with Billy, but Ian, I was a stranger to Ian. So that's one of those first things that I had to, where I really had to learn how to negotiate those waters. Um, so that was a difficult thing, but um, it was a huge album for them, you know? And that was part of the magic of the process of being in Vancouver, away from LA, you know, concentrating just on the record, you know, the work in pre-production, the sound of Little Mountain, and it was done quickly, and there's a vibe to it. That was that. That was the best part of of Little Mountain and the whole whole thing. That part of it. Yeah. After that, you know, um, all the albums after that uh, with the cult, it does change. But the band is really brilliant. Really Did your early stuff with the punk bands kind of help you as well with? You know, with the cult where you had, you know, you had a lot of these other bands, you know, lots of pieces and all that. Um, and now you kind of come down to more of that, that stripped down very, you know, I mean, Billy isn't doing, you know, 30 second note legato lines and stuff. He's a very straightforward, very rhythm focused player. Did So did the early experience with punk bands also help dial you into their mindset? Well, um, I, I'd say that what happened with punk, it, like I said, I was saying Roger and and Roger Monk and Dennis Lager taught us this style of engineering. Mm. But I started, the more I got into it, I went, well, this is okay if you're in uh, Supertramp, but the records that I like are these records. Yeah. Um, so I had to do research by reading and all sorts and trying things as to see what other, you know, what other people were doing. Right. And the punk bands allowed me the freedom of doing whatever I wanted. So I got a chance to bring in like dynamic microphones that the studio didn't have that I read that people used. So I bring those in and the punk bands were, they didn't know they're too happy to be there and make a record for almost nothing. Yeah. And I was happy because I, they were guinea pigs in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Bob, um, at the end of last year, they re-released uh, 
Bon Jovi's New Jersey as a double album. Now, um, at the time in '87 or '88, when they when they came to you guys saying they wanted to do a double record, what was your initial thoughts? Oh wow! Okay, well, gee, this is news to me. I didn't know they released that. I have to look at that. Yeah. Um, I just uh, I can imagine they could probably get a double record out of it because of all the songs that were written for it. Yeah. I mean, after Slippery, they they those guys at that point. Um, they they worked their asses up, so there was, I'm sure we got a lot of films. I don't think it was ever going to be a double album. That would that would have to been in John's head. I didn't know about that. Okay, no, it, yeah. got, it got re-released. I think the end of last the end of last year. There's about ten or eleven extra tracks on it. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know. I think a lot of people kind of have a you know a hard time envisioning some of the stuff that would would go on before automation and stuff. I know that I've had people that have have seen like pictures of old studios and stuff and been asking about, oh geez, how come like the control panel isn't pushed right up against the glass and stuff? And and when I tell them, well, that's so that people could get behind it to do mixes, and they would always look at me like, what the heck? What are you talking about? Because now you anytime you look at the studios, they've got these big digital consoles and they're you know, jammed right up against the control win- window and stuff like that. Now, was um, was Little Mountain set up that way as well? So you kind of had full access to the console? Um, we had full access to the console. I mean, um, I mean that's a, a that's an interesting kind of observation. Uh, I, you know, this is is this gets, this is where it gets technical, but. Um, the way our studios were set up, it was changed. Uh, John Bertasek changed the, where the monitors were. They were just hanging on the wall. Well, he built a speaker bridge in both studios that had these different kind of monitors. First, they were JBL, big JBL speakers, and then we went to Yuri Timelines. And so as you walked into the studio, you'd walk in, and there was a bridge above you that was solid. And John built it up steel I-beams and and just like there was sound in that, but his, his whole thing was, uh, in, in terms of design, in other words, he had a room to work with. Mm. It was not a room that was designed for sound, but he had a room to work with. So what he did is he acoustically came up with a speaker system that was uh, this huge bridge that they were mounted, and the focus was in the center of the new console. Um, that gave us that perspective and that gave us the, the precise monitoring that we all got used to. Mm. Um, uh, people that put consoles up against box windows, it's just kind of silly. Uh, because, it, it, you know, and this is, it's silly to me because, I, you know, John Vitasa taught me the reflections, all this stuff. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but having said that, the point to records and listening to it and monitoring is I still use JB, I still use Yamaha NS10. I use them with the subwoofer now. Mm. But I use the same Studer Power amplifier with NS10s, and I can go into any room in the world, and I can get a sound. The reason is, is I'm so used to working with it. In other words, I'm familiar with that chain of monitoring um so i could work anywhere so if i went just to where 
it was glass in front of that, I was instantly addressed. You know, it's right. kind of what, what you get used to. Yeah. But the point being, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that Little Mountain was the, the, the kind of like keystone for me to what my standard was. Everything came from that because I knew that. And John made me confident about that and all of us confident that if it was like this at Little Mountain, it was right. And that was not, that was by, uh, how do you say, you, you kind of just over the years making little adjustments and it just comes to this point where it's perfect. Right? Right, yeah. In the center of Studio A at Little Mountain, there was a sound and you knew exactly what was going on. If you went to Studio B, it was slightly different. We always said that Studio B was tighter than Studio A control-wise just because of the, the different sizes of the rooms and what was above the control room. There was a lounge above Studio A. There wasn't one above B, so the roof went way up. So there were slight nuances in it, but both rooms were like precise right. the way John made them. Yeah. And so for a room, they were the best room ever. And I think I basically cried when I heard they tore that stuff down. Wow. But it's just, yeah, we don't want to talk about the demise of it, uh, but, uh, you know, through the owners that ended up owning it, etc., and what they did, it was just like, it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Bob, I want to ask you, um, one of the things we never realized when we started doing this was uh, the fans used to hang around outside the studio. And uh, yeah. we've been told a couple of interesting stories. So do, do you have any funny stories of your, your the time you were there when you were making some of the records? I don't know if I want to get into the funny stories, but there's lots of them. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Motley, Motley brought their choppers when they came, and so did Billy and Ian. So, uh, you know... When the bikes were there, the police always followed, the strippers always followed. There was always something going on. I think the, the weirdest thing that ever happened is I was sitting in the front lounge, I think it was Mike Fraser, and we were sitting there. It was about 10.30 at night, and all of a sudden we heard gunshots. And across the, the street was the undercover police department, their secret headquarters. Somebody unloaded a basically a machine gun into the... Uh, the place they did the drive-by. They were in the lobby. That was the strangest thing that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Miles Ramsey told us a story about uh, David Lee Roth putting up a climbing wall in the loading bay. He did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, people started signing the back wall, too. Yeah, yeah. Everybody started doing that, all the bands, etc. Or banging, banging on the, the loading bay door was another one we were told. Oh, yeah. All the time. All To the beat of the drum <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, people were out there listening to try and hear the music, but all they could hear was the drums. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, cl closing for me, um, if you could look back at one album, not necessarily one that you worked on, that um, where everything just came together and it was just perfect. Uh, would you could you pick one album from the studio that, that was I'll made there? Slippery. Slippery one way. I'll say Slippery. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was just 
for both Bruce and I, uh, for the band, for the studio. For the, that was a six-week album, recording mix, all done in Studio A uh, very quickly. It was the best. Uh, it, just, it was just everything was the best. The way they played, the way where I was as an engineer mixer, where Bruce was, um, that was, that's where it all came together. You, you just knew uh, you just knew it was good, did you? You just straight you just looked at each other and went, "Listen, this is going to be big." Uh, well, I don't think Bruce and I, and I don't think I've ever done that. I've never counted on anything being big, but there was. Uh, I think when when we cut "Living on a Prayer" and they were doing it, we kind of went, "Well, this is pretty good," you know. We were just hoping that that record would go gold so we get more work. <laughs> you know, but but after that, it, you know, it's hard to pick one because you know, sonically, uh, the beginning of of what I did as a producer and an engineer mixer, which is Doctor Feelgood, mm-hmm. uh, that was perfect as well. Yeah. You know, a different a different thing, but it was challenging. But really, that that I guess that got me more. That got me more work than anything I've done previously. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone everyone cites Motley and that sound on that album as as why they needed to get Bob Rock. And of course, final final rap question for me because I'm the techie guy, and if I don't ask you this, I know I'm going to get way too many emails to handle about why I didn't ask you this. You know, obviously, Little Mountain had the the two big boards through their history, the Neve and the SSL. Was yep. one of them? You know, did you favor one over the other? Well, back then, it's, it's kind of almost, uh, in a perfect world for me, you recorded on the Neve and you mixed it on the SSL. Hmm. The Neve, I just loved, and to the, right now I use Neve more than anything. I record everything on a Neve now. Hmm. Um, but the SSL for rock music, um, for aggressive mixing, is is the, uh, you know, the E and the G series. Yeah. Uh, I like the 6,000 because that ended up being the sound of the Black Album. Uh, but those, they're the consoles where you could push the level. That's why I don't like the 9,000. It was not, it didn't have the headroom and you couldn't, you couldn't like push it. Right. Like the, uh, the 4,000 and the 6,000, the E and G series. Right. So you had more but, dynamic. Uh, yeah, I would say Bob Clearman the same thing. He recorded, I mean, Power Station had new consoles, but they had the SSL to mix up. That was pretty much it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, when we got the SSL, we were just so thankful because everybody else was making records on them, and, and we weren't, so there was a sound that we couldn't get. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, we could get it, so we were happy. But uh, things changed, and we kind of go, well, the need was something else. Yeah. Yeah, you see, this is, this is an interesting point. Back then, right, when you went through the Neve and then you went on to a Scully tape machine, right, yeah. when you played it back, you'd have to EQ because you lost so much of the transient, et cetera, on playback. Right. Everybody goes yay about analog, but I'm going like, no, it was not as, it was not as cool as you think it was. You'd lose top end, you'd lose transient with that on tape. Yeah. We lost right. it so much. Yeah. Peter were definitely better, but there was um 
because the need had so many transformers. Now in the digital age, it's a positive because those the warmth could be the transformers, etc. When you go to a, a digital format, the warmth is there, right? Yeah. You're not going through. Uh, let's put it this way: I think there's like uh, 14 transformers when you go through an ease. Mm-hmm. You're not going through that like twice and to analog. You, you lose all the transients and stuff. So um, right now, a need is great going into digital. Yeah. Yeah, so Bob, Bob this, I forgot, there's one more question I have for you. Um, <laughs> in in the 80s, when the studio blew up, uh, you would have had a lot of bands that were looking for you guys to produce them. Can you think of any of the bands that you had to turn down because of scheduling? Well, I, I turned down Prince three times. Wow, like wow. He always called and wanted me to come next Tuesday, and I'm going like, why do you do this? It's like, no. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't do that. I'm working with a band. And even though you're Prince and I'd love to work with you, I just, I can't drop, you can't do that to people. <laughs> you can't do that to people's lives, right? Yeah. If you if you say you're going to record them, you got to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Even if Led Zeppelin got back together and your record, I'd have to say, well, I can do it after I'm done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you, we yeah. definitely really appreciate you taking time today, Bob. It definitely, you know, would kind of be a hole in the project without having you to, to come on and, and kind of give your uh, your take on Little Mountain. So we, like I said, we really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. No problem. Okay, guys. All right, Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Bye. bye. do it for this week on focus on metal hope you enjoyed our talk with bob rock again 
Huge thanks to our buddy Mike Frazier for getting uh, us in touch with Bob and convincing him to come on the show. And I will tease you and let you know that there is not one but two Mike Frazier episodes that will be coming up on future parts of Little Mountain Sound. Or maybe I'll just combine both things into one big Mike Frazier episode because, yes, this one's almost beginning to seem like the project that never ends. But this is an end for this week. I just, you know, throw out one little note. You know, I decided to throw on that Crocus track from the Blitz there at the end. And I'm looking at the track credits and it's like, wait a minute. Bob Rock only engineered this and didn't produce it. So a little bit of a mix up there with, I think, their their list. But at least they kind of talk about him working under Bruce. But they don't particularly call it out to say he engineered it. So it almost seems like if you don't really read it well that he produced it. But it was kind of bugging me. But uh, there you go. Anyways, want to set the record straight on that one. Uh, Bob was indeed involved with the Blitz, but more as engineer. Another great Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock. Super team up, actually. Uh, even uh, Frage gets in on the action on that one. So as I said, that's it for this week. There ain't no more stick a fork in this one. It is done. So until we talk to you again next week, for Richie, myself, and everybody here at Focus on Metal, Have yourselves a great metal week, and as always, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.